sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Oklahoma Christian University political scientist Trey Orndorff. Hey, Trey. Hi, Mike. So uh, I'm really glad that you are able to join me today for this special episode we're doing on uh, reasons to be rationally optimistic about coronavirus. But before we get to the uh, episode, I want to thank our sponsor today, uh, and that is the Coronavirus Daily Briefing. You know, with so much information out there about coronavirus and all the updates and so forth, it's really hard to keep up and pretty easy to feel overwhelmed. And so this is where Coronavirus Daily Briefing can really help out. It's a new podcast that comes out every day at 5 p.m., with the latest headlines and context around the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis. It's a production of Ride Home Media, the daily podcast people, and it covers all the things that happen today, as well as all the things you can do to protect yourself tomorrow. It's a quick 15 to 20 minutes and you're up to date. The New Yorker magazine called it one of the top coronavirus podcasts to listen to, saying it stays on the right side of informed, non-hysterical, and focused. Search your podcast app right now and subscribe to Coronavirus Daily Briefing. That's Coronavirus Daily Briefing. You'll also find the link in today's show notes. And one more thing before we get started. You know, during a time like this, I think we all can agree that civil and rational discussion and analysis is is more important than ever. And we are incredibly grateful to the listeners who have helped out in the last few weeks by supporting the show on Patreon. We are doing our absolute best to keep up with everything and to release even more episodes and making them available to everyone. And we truly appreciate your support during this time. And of course, if you're not able to support us financially, we get that. We hope you'll consider, though, sharing the show on social media, which definitely helps out. And finally, of course, if you're not able to support us on Patreon, but you'd like to get our supporters-only episodes, just email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you all set up. Thanks so much for everything you do to keep the show going. All right. So, Trey, you know, uh, uh, not too long ago, I got an email from a longtime listener uh, uh, who, who wrote me, in the past couple episodes, you've sounded so sad and stressed. And I think, wow, if listeners are, are picking, and you know, I, that, that's fair to say, and it's, 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 a, it's a sad and stressful time. And that partly was the impetus or are are doing this special episode today because I feel like it's important to try to navigate between on one end the sort of Pollyanna-ish head in the sand, oh everything's fine, this is just like the flu, except a little bit worse. And then on the other end, the you know, the the catastrophizing and, and you know, and so in a lot of media it seems to go one way or the other, right? And what I'm hoping we can do here is find a middle ground and say to people, well, sure, this is incredibly serious. And I, I feel com- confident in saying this is the greatest crisis I've seen in my lifetime. But that doesn't mean that we can't find some reasons, again, to be reasonably, rationally optimistic. And I, I imagine you'd agree with that, right, Trey? I definitely agree with that, uh, especially since. 
when you're getting all your information uh, from kind of traditional news sources, you have to recognize that they're for-profit businesses. And so they're trying to make money. And what makes money is is the most clicks. And so I know that both of us as being, you know, we introduce the show every week as being, we're political scientists. And I think a lot of times everybody kind of glosses over the scientist part. But a big part of what we do is try to understand the nature and the limit of making rational predictions. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you mention that people are from what they're getting from their media, it's very different. And there are some really intriguing differences between how sort of red and blue America are seeing all this. And I think there are a number of reasons for this. Obviously, on the right, what we're seeing is erring on the side of sort of minimizing. And on the left, when people are erring, I think they're erring on the side of, of you know, the, the opposite of, I hate to say overreacting, but certainly maximizing, I guess you could say. And, I, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot and reading think- about this. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think maybe another way of, I was even kind of thinking of it as being kind of the Netflix version of it, right? It's almost like it's the the end-all pandemic of death. Yeah, and, you know, I think part of that is on the right, people are taking cues from leadership figures like President Trump, who for so long and basically said this was, you know, something of an overreported hoax to destroy his, try and destroy his presidency, and even after he shifted into saying this is a serious thing, he seems to still be uncomfortable with that. And his messaging on this, I, I think, to be charitable, has been inconsistent. And But it's more than that. I think there's a lot more inherent mistrust of authority figures in government on the right and experts on the right. And finally... Especially experts. Yeah, especially experts. And then finally, when you take a look at the geographic spread, of the coronavirus and and the the hotspots, they tend to be in areas that are much more left than right. And so I think for all of those reasons, we're seeing two very different responses to this. And and not to not to excuse either one, but I think it's important to try to understand why this is going on the way it is. No, it's a great insight. I'm here in Oklahoma, for example. Had it not been for the Utah Jazz, and I'm not in any way, this is not not denigrating. I love NBA, um, best sport there is. But, um, you know, had it not been for the Utah Jazz player coming to Oklahoma, uh, our cases would have remained at two. Uh, we had two in Tulsa. Uh, and But those were individuals who had been in Italy, knew they had been exposed, and were immediately put into isolation. Uh, and and when the Utah Jazz player came, he did what a good Utah Jazz player does. He goes around and he visits the high schools locally, and uh, and and that and that changed things. But even so, our numbers are just teeny in comparison to say uh, California or New York. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think you're very much right in, you know, if I went out, you know, we're in, you know, we are in lockdown mode in uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, but the likelihood that if I walked out and said got too close to a neighbor would be a, a fatal problem for somebody down the line from me is much, much lower than if that were to happen for somebody right now in some parts of New York City or uh, New York State. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So why don't we, uh, I thought a way to sort of uh, develop this or, or approach uh, this episode would be to take a look at reasons for, again, rational optimism in at least 
two different ways. And there are there are reasons to be rationally optimistic about sort of the outcome that what's going on now and what will be going on in the immediate future. And then we can also look at the aftermath, the medium to long term. And I think there are some reasons for optimism there. And 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 I know that even though I've been putting in all these disclaimers, people will say some people will say, well, you know, you shouldn't be optimistic at all. But I, I would disagree with that. I think it's important to understand what the worst case may be and to prepare for very negative outcomes. But I think it's also important to to understand that, you know, that worst case scenarios are on a sliding scale of things and to understand that things might not end up as badly as 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 they <clears throat> can be predicted to on the far end. So, okay, here we go. So first off, one reason to be rationally optimistic, and one thing I think to, to keep in mind is that the vast majority of the people who get coronavirus will recover. And for people under the age of, say, 60 or so, those rates are even higher. So I think you would agree, Trey, that that is not necessarily a reason for optimism, but just an important fact to keep in mind. Well, and I think there's another one that's embedded in there. And, and being a parent myself, I think this is a place to find some solace. Unlike many diseases, say the flu, uh, the youngest population, instead of it being oftentimes in diseases, the youngest and the oldest population are simply the most at risk. Uh, and, and, and at flu season and for other kinds of season, this can be a very deadly time of year. It appears thus far, though, um, that the children, while not immune, are certainly at higher levels of resistance for reasons we don't understand uh, than are in, even people my age. And so I think another you know, inside of these numbers that we take a look at, you're talking about who's going to be OK, not having to worry about, hey, what's going to happen to my my three kiddos at the same rate? as you're also simultaneously worrying about uh, elderly population, that's another reason for some cautious optimism. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And also kind of related to what, what we seem to know with very spotty information is that while things will definitely get a lot worse in the United States, there also will be a decline. And, and you know, China, I think, is since it came, started from China, it, it's the best place to look for because it's the longest time frame. And the first cases in China were reported on December 31st. And on March 19th, China reported no new domestic cases. So now China, of course, was, was able to do a lot more sort of uh, severe lockdown and monitoring things than we are here. But even so, it, it this seems like well, it's important to keep in mind that this will and there will be a peak and it will be bad, but this will subside. And that's important to keep in mind. And our subsiding will uh, arrive at the same time as traditionally these kinds of viruses tend to want to subside themselves. So we also we just happen we have the fortuitous good luck of having this potential peak and this potential subsiding coinciding with environmental factors that should ought to help it peak as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and the fact, I think, that China has rebounded. Now, there, there are people who will, I think, rightly point out that we can't necessarily trust all their data and it's not like everything's fine in China. That's That's absolutely the case. But given the fact 
that many of our much needed medical supplies come from China. And should that be the case? Well, that's definitely a discussion that we are going to have as a country once all this is over. But that's how it is now. And the fact that their their economy, their production ability is starting to ramp up again when many other places, including us, are going to need it the most, that's a positive. Because if it hit at the same time, that would be a much bigger problem. Well, and I know that uh, there's been a lot of people who've suggested, you know, that the the numbers from China can't be trusted. And and again, like you, I'm not suggesting that, you know, you have to take an authoritarian regime's word for everything. But if the numbers were truly as negative as I think some are suggesting, it's unlikely that we would see these kinds of productive gains happen. In other words, there are some measures you simply can't mask. Right. Uh, and so if, if if Chinese production continues to increase at a rate, what we have to suggest is whatever the real numbers are, they obviously are, in fact, getting better or we wouldn't see productivity going up. Uh, so one other thing, you can't hide everything. Another good reason for optimism, right? Even authoritarian regimes, if they're going to engage in the marketplace, can't hide everything. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. And, you know, another reason for optimism is when we look at uh, some some other places like Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, there is some evidence that shows that very strict adherence to hand washing, disinfecting, and social distancing is almost as effective as avoiding contact altogether. Now, of course, it can't be as effective, but there have been some uh, some studies that have looked at, for instance, healthcare workers in those countries who followed these procedures but didn't have, you know, special have access to sort of special, you know, N95 masks and that sort of thing. That, that suggests that, well, if people are very, very careful and diligent, that is going to be maybe even a little bit more helpful than we thought. And so given what we know about the almost inevitability of our going back to some limited version of regular economic activity in the next two to four weeks, uh, and I say, based on my read of the Trump administration and a lot of other people, that's almost a guarantee. It's possible that things won't blow up quite as badly as some people are suggesting if people are very diligent. Yeah, and I think this is another area where a lot of cautious optimism, a lot of rational optimism is warranted. Many things when you're trying to predict them in life, Mike. If you want to talk about, well, what's going to make a good distance? We were talking uh, before the show began about being a distance runner or endurance. And the answer is that most of these things, we know what the, you want to be a healthier person. You know, you don't want to have run a little bit every day, right? Swim a little bit every day, uh, engage and walk a little bit every day. And the same thing holds true here. I think we tend to downplay how significant just being, um, thoughtful about your physical distancing from others and washing your hands well and consistently will do. And we, and we don't recognize what a big impact on numbers, just those kinds of behaviors have in the same way that it doesn't feel like if you go for a short walk every day that you've done anything miraculous, but in a month, the outcome is dramatic. And the same thing holds true here in the, in the face of a pandemic, it's not going to be the big flashy showy, uh, item that's gonna that's gonna help people. It's gonna be adhering 
to the, the, the tried and true basics that will have some really big potential impacts on people's lives. And you're not going to see it, you know, now when you're singing happy birthday twice and washing your hands, you're yeah. going to see it uh, a couple of months from now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, earlier on, we talked about how the the virus targets different groups, older groups, particularly at higher rates. And, and of course, for, for all of us who have older friends and family and so forth, that's a, that's a huge uh, and troubling concern. But when we think about the inevitable return to regular economic activity, that also means that it's probably going to be less hazardous to return to that because a, the bulk of the workforce is not going to be in one of those higher risk groups. And so it may be possible to engineer a gradual return. And I know there's already some discussions about this based on age and risk groups so that we don't end up, you know, sending ourselves into another Great Depression type situation while still protecting public health. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get people saying that this is this is a difficult conversation. There are some people who resist having this conversation at all. And I, I guess I, I have a trouble with that because it's a conversation we have to have. There are always risks. And so the question, I mean, we can't not have this conversation. The question we need to ask is, where's the balance point here? And so people, I think, rightly pointed out that President Trump should not be making comparisons to car crashes and saying, well, we don't have people driving just because people get killed in car crashes. That There are a lot of problems with making those comparisons, especially now. And I have a lot of problems with President Trump's rhetoric on this in general. But the larger point is true, is that public health is always a trade-off. And so the question is, where do we set those lines? And we need to be having those conversations now. Yeah, let me give a really pragmatic example. We had uh, on at Oklahoma uh, Christian University, we have a faculty member uh, who just recently retired, and he had numerous, numerous health problems. And as, as you well know, Mike, on a residential campus, uh, diseases can can spread through campus like wildfire. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, earlier this winter, we had about 30% of the student body had the flu. Wow. Now, is that going to hurt any of our students? No. I mean, in the long run, no. Uh, but we have a number of at-risk faculty members, and so we had to take some measures to try to keep other populations okay. And I think the problem is, and I think what you're kind of pointing out about what happens here with Trump, there is kind of a default level of response. And you don't think to yourself, I'm making a choice about probabilities, right? So my students, when they were coming in with the flu, they weren't thinking about the probability of very likely killing uh, this individual. And so we had to be very careful to keep students away uh, who were showing uh, symptoms because they weren't thinking about uh, killing this particular individual. Sure. Uh, but the I think, but then this gets into your mind, and then you start thinking about the probabilities. And I think for most people, because they don't think about those probabilities, it seems cold and 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 uh, maybe a little bit uh, base to even suggest, like as you were saying, well, we have to think about it. Yeah, but I, you are doing whether you're thinking about it or not, you're doing it. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the point here is is we you know you've been doing this your whole life, you just weren't conscious. So maybe another bit of uh, optimism here is. 
maybe we should be living those choices more purposefully. Yes. Um, and that means talking about it and being uncomfortable, but it means recognizing, yeah, if I go into work with the flu or uh, I can, I can actually harm somebody, maybe even take their life. And if you've never thought about that before, maybe it's time that we do. Yeah. And because it's a, an invisible thing, literally, it's just hard for people, I think, to grasp that in a, in a very kind of tangible way. Uh, you know, and another thing that I'm grateful for, and a reason I think for some optimism, is that uh, despite uh, momentary shortages of things like toilet paper and, and so forth, that we really still have a very strong uh, base, uh, production base. We have very robust transportation networks in most of this country and very strong supply chains. And they absolutely have been stressed in a lot of ways. And obviously, there are some very vital things that we don't have nearly enough of. But our ability to get critical things to people who need them is uh, is very important and very, very impressive. And I think we've seen a lot of people really making incredible efforts to do that. And that, I think, is a reason to uh, if maybe not be optimistic, but certainly be grateful. Heavens, yes. I, I was reading an article yesterday uh, about a backlash against Amazon because for non-priority goods, even Prime members are now facing, you know, what they were calling, quote unquote, long uh, waits, end mm -hmm. quote. Well, you knew what that was. Well, it'd sometimes be three and a half weeks. Yeah. And I, and all I could think to myself was if, if we can be complaining about my coffee maker now going to take three and a half weeks to get here during a pandemic, think how lucky we are. Yeah. Uh, and I recognize there's shortages of things, but I'm not, I'm not going hungry. My family is not going hungry. We're not facing the prospect of going hungry. We're not facing the prospect. Uh, you know, each of them, uh, some of them take some medicines. Uh, they are not facing the, a shortage of most medicines. I mean, talk about a, a miraculous uh, a time to be alive on that front. And, and think of the optimism there that we're, not, you know, my kids will eat. My kids will have their medicine. Okay. It takes four weeks. Like, let's <laughs> put, yeah. put that in perspective. Yeah. And, you know, and the other side of this, and this will be a little bit of a down note, but my, uh, my wife is her her area. She's a political scientist as well. As you know, Trey, her area is international studies. And, you know, she's reminded me, say, well, think about some of these these mega cities in, in the developing world where when this hits and it, it, you know, certainly will, it's going to be slower to get there. There's almost no kind of infrastructure, at least certainly not to the level that we have here. And, uh, you know, that that has her in, incredibly distressed for those people. And we, and that is an awful thing. And, you know, we just got to hope that by the time that that does hit in those areas that we have some treatments and ideally a vaccine, but uh, it is, uh, you know, we, we can feel because most everyone who's listening to this podcast is in the developed world and, and we can feel grateful for those, those things and those protections that oftentimes we maybe take for granted. Agreed. You know, also, I think even though in the last few days, this may have changed by the time listeners you hear this, but there will be, there already has been a massive uh, government economic policy response. I mean, the Fed has basically said that we are going to spend as much as we need, however many trillions we need, to cushion the impact of this. And there will be a bill 
and monetary policy, you know, that a stimulus bill out of Congress. It's really just a matter of is it going to be one point eight trillion or two point? And we're, there, there were certainly details, and it is distressing that it hasn't come out. But this will be a massive response that will have a very positive effect that will make the economic consequences a lot less bad than they would have been otherwise. And we're not just talking about economic consequences because, of course, these economic consequences also end up being public health consequences. So the more we can support people economically, the more that's going to have secondary effects of supporting their health and well-being. And that is a good thing to, to know that you know, that the Federal Reserve and eventually in the next day or so, I imagine Congress will be uh, will be acting on this in a big way. Agreed. Very much agreed. Yeah. And, you know, also kind of along the same lines, this is, uh, uh, as you know, Trey, when we are faced with any kind of a big international crisis, when there's uncertainty in the world, what does everyone do? Everyone rushes to U.S. Treasuries, right? Because that's that's mm-hmm. you, you see, and what that means is that this massive spending that we're going to be doing, trillions of dollars, is going to be financed at extremely low rates. I, the last time I looked at 10-year treasury bonds, which was like a day or two ago, and that's sort of that key benchmark safe investment, they're at around 0.8%, which is down from- 0.7 this yeah, morning. Yeah, okay. They're 0.7 this morning. And previous- to the the months before the pandemic, they were around one point eight percent, and that might not seem like a lot when you're when you're financing trillions of dollars. That uh, well, just think about your house for a minute. Wouldn't you take uh, Wouldn't you take two point five over four point five any day? And that's just one. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely. And so I think that uh, that is something important to uh, to keep in mind. And and while we're talking about this trade, this is really more of an aftermath thing, but it's very closely related. You know, I think especially conservatives, when they hear numbers like two trillion, two trillion in stimulus spending, that that's scary. That dwarfs what we spent in the 2008, you know, the financial crisis. And so I thought I thought about how how should we contextualize this? And, you know, some people have been talking about this is the biggest crisis we've seen since World War Two. And so I thought, well, maybe a way to contextualize the spending is in relation to World War II. And so that's what I did. And so here's what I found out. We did considerably more government spending as a percentage of GDP, which is the right way to measure it. So you're comparing apples to apples uh, in World War II. At the peak of our government spending, this was 1943, we we spent the equivalent today of $5.6 trillion in 1943. And that was also true to a lesser extent for 42, 44, and 45. Well more all, all of those years than we're considering spending right now in this current stimulus. And yeah, there was the big spike in inflation in 1946, went up to like 18%. But part of that had to do with the fact that there were wage and price controls that were imposed during the war that we don't have here. But even so, after 1946, if you take a look at the inflation chart, things went back down to normal pretty quickly. And so if we look at World War II as an example, we've done a lot more, a lot more quickly for a much more extended time. And we've been okay. It's taken some time for sure. But to me, looking at that comparison, that is a reason to be optimistic. You know, I, on that front, I can't disagree with you. 
And, and you know, I, as a conservative, I'm sure, especially as a libertarian, you've got to have concerns about government spending. I mean, it's kind of what, what you guys do, right? <laughs> it's what we do. Well, I mean, and this is maybe not a, is kind of outside the scope of the uh, of the show. I, I think a big part of the question is, is what are you spending your money on? And, uh, you know, and, and I think the big one and we've talked about this on the show is how, how do you budget for um, paying it off? Uh, but I, I think that you're putting it into historic context is useful for the context of what we're doing here, which is to say, how do we how ought do I think? When you get to a certain level of numbers, it's difficult to say, well, what what do those numbers mean? And I yeah. think one way to at least help everybody put them into that perspective, whether they uh, they want them to be as large as they are or not, is to compare them to other historic numbers. And so on that front and in the context of what we're doing for this show, Mike, uh, I think that's a really useful and I had not thought about doing it that way comparison. Yeah. Well, like I said, I, I, I was I was searching out this week for a way to try to put this in context. So this is just such an unusual uh, event that I think that's probably the best the best comparison. Though, of course, you know, World War II was was multiple years, and we we have every reason to very strongly believe that this will not be a multiple year thing. At least not COVID nineteen. Though it's almost certain that we will have pandemics in in the future. Um, you know, and and also going to this is an aftermath thing, but it's related that there's no question that. There is we are we are in a recession because we have done that purposefully, right? We've stopped big parts of the economy, but there's unlike our last major recession after the financial crisis, the underlying financial system and economic system is reasonably strong. And unlike with, say, World War II, it's not like the industrial base of the world is being damaged, destroyed by bombing and fighting and that sort of thing. And Mm-hmm. There's every reason to believe that this could be what economists call a V-shaped recession, meaning we go down super quick and then we pop up again fairly quickly. And that will have some pretty significant effects. I mean, for, you know, for boomers who are thinking about retiring in the next year or two, that that is almost certainly going to make that a tougher thing to do and maybe push that back a year or two. But even if you look at the overall economic growth trajectory building in the Great Depression and World War II, you see those numbers, that, that overall trend line, those things correct pretty quickly, even after greater dislocations economically than we're going to see. And so for me, that's a reason for, for optimism, and that's not to discount the short-term pain or the pain for the next couple of years that a lot of people are going to be feeling economically, especially those close to retirement. Well, and the other the other thing to keep in mind as a market watcher, and you're talking about that V-shape recovery, is that this is a, this is a self-imposed recession, and as a result, unless that you think the underlying companies are have issues, there's no reason to think that they won't resume where they were. Isn't and and in some cases, it might actually mean there's an additional amount of activity uh, today. One of the big uh, ups. Is that you know more and more people are now doing shopping remotely for groceries, uh, which has led to a huge about a three hundred to three hundred fifty thousand job increase for uh, grocery shoppers. Yeah, uh, and those kinds of one of the things to keep in mind is once people kind of enter into these behaviors, it's kind of like you buy a subscription or become Amazon Prime, and then you think, well, I'm going to cancel that, and then it just never happens. Uh, there's reason to think that many of the things that we're using now and we come to like 
will just kind of get baked into the economy. Uh, and so while, yeah, right now people not, as you're pointing out, not to minimize anybody who's currently uh, suffering a job shortage uh, or a lack of hours because of a self-imposed recession, but these positions, they might continue to exist. Jobs that would not have existed may very well afterwards continue to exist because of consumer preference change, uh, which leads to a bigger demand for some workers in a number of sectors. Yeah, that, that's a great point. You know, one area in particular where I think we're going to see some longstanding changes is uh, telemedicine. During the crisis, a lot of states are loosening their restrictions on that. And I think a lot of those restrictions are going to remain, at least to a certain extent, loosened after. And I think that, you know, you can make an argument saying that, well, it's be- it's not necessarily better if people don't go out to get their groceries and things like that. If You can argue either way, but expanding access to medical services for people who are not in a position to be able to easily get to a doctor, to me, that's a that's a big positive for the future, and I think that's 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 a positive thing that we might see coming out of this in the in the medium to long term. Uh, and more generally, of course, you know, from a technology standpoint, right now in, in 2020, we're far better positioned to deal with all the uh, sheltering at home and so forth than we ever have been. Can can you? I can't imagine what would have happened, you know, even 10 years ago. Right. Because everyone's on Zoom conferences, uh, broadband. We couldn't have done that, at least not to the extent we're doing it now. And that would have caused even greater problems. So that's, you know, that's uh, there's no way, for instance, that NKU could have moved. I don't think could have moved all online uh, in (laughs) in, in, a decade ago, certainly not two decades ago. You know, so there's that. Heavens no. And, and, you know, it's weird because this is one of the areas where when I'm teaching students, it's so it's hard to kind of get them to realize what a and this word gets thrown around a lot, but I'm going to use it here because I think it is the case. What a miracle micro uh, computing has been for the average human being in many ways it doesn't mean they don't come with downfalls. And we've mentioned on the show a bunch of times issues with our uh, connected world. But you know, the ability of families to remain connected uh, via instantaneous video chat, the ability of my classes to continue online so that students can get credit and not miss five weeks of classes effectively. Uh, it, 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 is, it is remarkable what is possible to do remotely. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we have to downplay the importance of, of seeing people face to face. Yeah. But the fact that we can do it this way, uh, it's just a testament to our human ingenuity. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another thing, this is, this will be something that will be, I guess, disputable, but as a person of the left and as somebody who looks to some of the Nordic countries and, and sees, and sees their systems and say, ah, that would be so nice uh, if we had it here. You know, this is an opportunity, I think, for those of us on the left to point out the advantages of a strong social safety net in place so that when things happen and happen on a large scale, we don't have to scramble so much to protect people, but those protections are built in. And not only that, uh, that's, that doesn't just apply to crisis, it, crises. I want to say that over the last couple of days, I've had a couple of little health things and I, I, I thought to myself, I felt a little bit of anxiety, you know, saying to myself, well, what if I 
can't get to see the doctor for this? Or what if the, I can get to see the doctor, but the medicine I need isn't available? What am I going to, what am I going to do? And it occurred to me that that's a question that, that I, as a, you know, as a privileged person in this country, uh, uh, you know, an up, a middle-class, solidly middle-class person, I don't have to ask myself that question very often. But there are millions, tens of millions of Americans who live that every single day, coronavirus or not. And I would like to think that the experience of myself and, and so many other Americans now who've never felt that anxiety, at least not that much, that might make us a little more, everyone a little more willing to consider what it's like to live like that constantly and maybe make us a little more open to trying to design systems so that people don't have to feel that as often. And if we can do that, I think that would be an incredibly positive longer-term outcome. Now, this might be the only one, uh, Mike, where I think you might be too optimistic. Uh, I, I would like to think that this would be an opportunity to think about something like a, a universal uh, reverse income tax or something uh, as a possibility. Uh, but I think, anyway, I mean, we're trying to be optimistic. So let's not, I'm not going to say that. So. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, again, I think that it's not, it's not something that's going to happen immediately. But I think how these things happen is, you know, incrementally over time, all of a sudden the idea gets introduced, more people start thinking about it. It goes from being, it goes from being crazy insane to being something that's, well, kind of out there. And then over the course of a decade or two, all of a sudden it becomes, well, yeah, why don't we do this sort of thing? And we've seen it on smaller levels. We've seen it actually happen pretty quickly with things like uh, marijuana legalization and, uh, and same-sex marriage. Now, the things we're talking about here are obviously a lot more financially difficult, and that's where it gets really tough. But it's not like this doesn't happen. Social change, political change does and can happen, and big events like this can make it easier. I won't disagree with that. You know, and um, a longer-term thing that I've heard, and I didn't really think about this until I, I, I happened across something about it. There was apparently a, uh, an article by, uh, I think, a psychologist who said one of her patients, clients, I don't know the term, uh, came in to her and said, my daughter said to me, mommy, I like coronavirus because it means I get to spend time with you. And I thought, wow. Um, but, you know, the point of the article and the point the author was trying to make is Americans are an incredibly work-driven society. You take a look at our hours and, and compared to a lot of places in Europe and the rest of the developed world, and it's just nuts. And there's maybe the hope that People now spending time with their families and their kids uh, will will perhaps have a greater appreciation of hey this is what's really important in my life and maybe maybe I can work from home a little more often or maybe I can find a way to spend time with my kids because you know I'm I'm not making the money to make the money I'm making the money so I can have quality uh, time with these people that I love and that matter to me. And, and if we can see even a minor change in that, I think that's going to be a very positive change for, uh, uh, for, for the country. Yeah, I'll actually let, a, I had a personal note on this front. I think that this more than anything, as we start thinking about the aftermath, uh, is something worthwhile. And that is 
I think for a long time, Americans, the idea you were kind of putting it is that work-life balance, Mike. I think they've really lost sight of the truth that, you know, your life isn't a bunch of, of uh, beanbags you're trying to keep in the air and you're trying to make sure that you're giving them all equal attention and somehow the, the best of us are the ones who keep the most bags in the air simultaneously. I think we got to think about our lives in a more holistic way. And I, that's why I love that little story from the, uh, the Wall Street Journal. Because I think it tells to a deeper narrative that our work and our children and what we do, they're all part of our purposes and that we need to think of ways that these intertwine with each other. Right. Uh, and and <clears throat> so a lot of times students will ask me, <laughs> I think sometimes a little bit derogatorily, um, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, why? Why are you a professor instead of, you know, practicing in your field? And, and part of the answer to that question is, is I do the things that I do because I wanted to be able to incorporate a family into my life in a certain way. And so I had to make purposeful choices about, you know, what I can and can't do in my life every day. And that's one of the reasons I don't know what, um, you know, NKU's policies are on this, Mike. Uh, but, you know, one of the reasons I was very happy to uproot and uh, move to Oklahoma was uh, here at OC, we have an environment where there's our kid, my faculty kids are around all the time. I know all the children from my faculty because they spend much of their day on campus and in meetings. Uh, we have meetings and there's kids with us because we're holistic people. And I, one of the things that I hope that we see in the aftermath of this is that workers push companies to recognize that we aren't a work person 50% of the time and a home person 50% of the time. We are human beings who work and have children and families all the time, 100% of the time. And, uh, and, and I think that's a, a much healthier way of thinking about it than trying to think, well, how can I cut myself up and keep those pieces in the air? And, and if we can get that in the aftermath of this, if we can get real change, uh, and I think that's going to come from people making demands of employers yeah. to say this is a different way to think about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the... It Political change without cultural change is kind of a, a weak thing, and I think we need more of a cultural change. There's a uh, a distinction I read about years ago, and I forget who, who who coined it, but that distinction between the urgent and the important. And I think we so often get focused on the the, the million little urgent things that have to do with our work lives, and forget about the the, the few very important things that aren't urgent, like spending that extra amount of time actually really listening to say what our spouse is talking about as opposed to trying to do that at the same time as we're we're doing some work say or the podcast as i more than a few occasions am guilty of doing and, and <laughs> that's the kind of thing that you know it sneaks up on you and now all of a sudden i think to a certain extent the urgent has become the important because now we're all really focused on the health and safety of our ourselves and and the people we love and and I know that most of that's going to go away because that's how human beings are. But if even a little bit of it can stay around, I think that's a that's a positive thing, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. Also, you know, I I would like to think that based on this experience, some small but significant portion of the American electorate is going to more highly value competence and experience in our leadership. Uh, I. And, and, you know, and kind of maybe move away a little more from from leaders who may be appealing emotionally 
but don't have much experience and are very divisive. And yeah, I'm talking about, of course, President Trump here. You know, I I pulled up some data from the National Election Study, which is, as you know, Trey, kind of like the gold standard for knowing (laughs) what voters are are doing and thinking. Mm -hmm. There are around 6.7 million people who voted, according to this, uh, Obama in 2012 and Trump in 2016. And I think this is maybe the the group that a certain percentage of them might think, well, you know, what, maybe I could reconsider what drew me to Donald Trump and maybe reconsider not to say part of his message about people being left behind and so forth. I think that's an important, you know, and important part of the message, but maybe somebody who tries to address those concerns, but somebody who has far more experience, somebody who is administratively capable and who isn't just thrown into a job and who kind of scoffs at, to a certain extent, scoffs at information and trusts his gut and those sort of things, where that's the sort of thing that in a, in a major crisis, that can be incredibly damaging. And I, you know, I think it's still, to get on a little more negative note, you know, the, the uh, criminal lack of preparation and availability of testing, uh, you know, that's, that's the example of the sort of thing that happens when you have people who are inexperienced and of questionable competence, even though they might sound good on, uh, on Twitter. Yeah, and I, th- I think here one of the elements that I hope we were talking about this in kind of the negative way earlier, so let's kind of spin it around in the positive way, and that is is that we oftentimes don't uh, value the ability to read, uh, in- ingest data and information and take away kind of rational outcomes from that. I mean, that's just not something that we that we as a culture have have prioritized. Uh, have you ever watched uh, the the Simpsons the movie? Oh uh, yeah, Mike. Yeah. So you'll know then my one of my favorite my all time I think it really sums up the American culture. It's President Schwarzenegger and the, uh, and the right the EPA comes over. He's like, I have seven different horrible options. You know, which one are you going to pick, Mr. President? And uh, President Schwarzenegger's response is, I was elected to lead, not to read. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. it cracks me up, but it's also disappointing. Because I think it's a really great summation of the uh, of our priority. We think that there that leadership means downplaying thoughtfulness uh, and um, that help more than anything as we get through this. I, I, I don't it's it's expertise, but it's also a priority to put on people yeah. who are thoughtful yes. consumers of information. And and I think if there's anything that just frustrates the everything out of me about Donald Trump. It's that he is a man who purposefully doesn't read both actually and metaphorically. Yeah. And that, that goes, I mean, that goes to sort of a, I guess, a fundamental psychological disposition. And that's not something you can change, especially after a certain age. And so it's not like the left or the right has a monopoly on thoughtfulness and open-mindedness and being responsive to data, but you can find people on both sides who are resistant to those things. And, you know, the current occupant of the White House is an example, unfortunately. Um, You know, uh, one one other thing, and this is uh, a positive thing, I think, is that I'm fairly certain that after all this is over, there is, well, there are going to be, boy, there's going to be a reckoning of some sort. There's going to be hearings and all sorts of investigations and, you know, 
incredible. But I think what that's going to set up is that is going to significantly strengthen our pandemic and disaster preparedness because just as epidemiologists, virologists have said for for years, this is coming and they were right, they've also said that things even worse than what we are going to experience in the next year or so with COVID-19 will also almost certainly be coming. And all of a sudden then you might be talking about, you know, deaths and, and, and destruction that's an order of magnitude greater if we're not prepared. And I think that this experience, as awful as it's going to be, and it will be, will prepare us from what I am sure will be potentially even worse things in the future. So, I mean, calling it a wake-up call, I don't mean to minimize it because a wake-up call is more like a, this is like a wake-up call that's being knocked to the ground and beaten. But if it if it gets us more prepared for what's sure to come in the future, well, then that is also a positive longer term outcome. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons for for kind of putting forward a show like this, Mike, and being optimistic in part is to remind people that if if, if we do the basic things right and if things are less drastic than we might fear, uh, it might be easy to say, "Man, I was really hyped up that didn't happen." And so when that and, and by it didn't happen, I mean to kind of put that in quotation marks, right? Just, in other words, it doesn't meet our worst fears, then when this happens again, it might be easy to say, oh, well, you know, that didn't meet my worst fears last time. Yeah. And therefore be, be caught in kind of a complacency because you were, you were too, you were, you were too afraid this time. And, and so I hope one of the things as we kind of think about reasons for optimism is to say, look, if we do everything right, things will be better not because they just happen to be better, but because of these reasons to be rationally optimistic. And if, if, if you don't meet your fears, then you'll, you'll be able to more rationally approach, I think, the next one as well. Because it's a easy in human behavior to think, oh, you know, I was expecting, man, I, th- I thought the world was going to end and lava was going to come out of the mountains, I, I, metaphorically. And you know, I didn't. So ah, I guess next one, maybe we shouldn't worry about it. And so I think that's, Another reason, as you're talking about you know, these future ones, to, to try to be uh, realistically optimistic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's hard to do. As you mentioned at the, at the beginning, toward the beginning of the show, that the media pushes us away from this. And so I want to get into sort of at least a couple of the things that I'm doing to try to set myself in a rationally optimistic frame. So again, not to, not to discount the badness, because there's plenty of that for sure, but to try to deal with the anxiety and, and stress and sadness that, you know, listeners clearly have heard in me and, and the anger as well, and to try to find a way to cope. And one thing for what it's worth that I found that's been very useful for me is to sort of be even more conscious about how often I I consume news media because honestly, it's not like getting an update five minutes from now. I, I mean, I, I don't know in the last hour what Congress has done or what the president has tweeted, and it, because it's not going to matter, you know, in my life if I know now or three hours from now. But it will make me more anxious if I keep on clicking and reading new things. And so, what I have found is that turning off my news notifications and making a conscious effort to only look at news and social media 
like two or maybe three times a day, that's made a big difference. Because after this first hit, I mean, in a big way, I was checking all the time and my anxiety levels were just way, way up there. And one thing to keep in mind is we know that there's a link between stress and immune system response. So you are not doing yourself any favors physiologically by getting yourself, you know, unnecessarily stressed out by constantly checking. No, as a matter of fact, this is my area. And I would suggest for listeners, and this is what I do personally as well. You don't have your phone ping you, (laughs) you know, have your text messages ping you unless maybe you're one of those people with thousands a day, but uh, text messages and phone calls and then have scheduled times through the day where for business and email or for keeping up with the news, you're going to read the paper is the way I, 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 is the way I like to think about it metaphorically. Um, And so for me, that's, I think that's a way to move forward. And we know, I mean, the research is there. Having your brain constantly hearing that sound is just like Pavlov's dog. And it takes your attention away from what you're doing. It takes your attention away from your family. It takes your attention away from your work when you're trying to get into deep concentration mode. And it certainly lowers your immune response systems. It makes it harder for you to sleep. Uh, And in, in a crisis like this, it does nothing to help you and everything to harm you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is especially a a recommendation for my my fellow left of center folks is we've seen most of the uh, negative, most negative projections on the left. I mean, I saw Vox is a great example of this. They had a headline uh, a couple of days ago, six things to know about the coronavirus testing disaster in the U.S. The medical supply chain is the latest fiasco. Now, there are a whole bunch of just trigger words right there, and that could be written to convey the same information in a much less sort of fear-inducing way. But that's that has been, for the reasons we talked about maybe at the beginning of the show, we've seen a lot more of that from the outlets that I tend to look at and the outlets probably that a lot of my fellow left-of-center folks tend to look at. So let me recommend this to you. Is, is I know I'm not saying watch Fox News. You're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that, honestly, because I find it just awful for a lot of reasons. And that talk about stressful. but there are some right of center outlets that are not insane, that we would think of them as insane, that are not sticking their heads in the sand and being what we consider completely irresponsible. And I would recommend checking, put, putting one or two of them in your daily rotation just so you can get maybe a little bit more of a perspective. And there are a couple I'm going to recommend by name. One is the Bulwark, uh, and that is an anti Trump sort of right of center website and we'll have links to these in the show notes uh another is uh another is national review they're fairly anti-trump in many ways and i think that can provide somewhat of a more of a balance and of course the wall street journal though they they are most of their stuff is behind a paywall i've been checking them a lot and it's not like i'm going to you know uh breitbart or, or any you know kind of wild things like that but i think that might help a lot of us get a little more of a balance from what I consider sort of the the rational right. And that, that I found to be kind of useful, certainly. No, the Wall Street Journal, especially, I think is one of the, the best magazine, excuse me, one of the best newspapers uh, that, that you can read today. 
Yeah, it's it's no it's no Washington Post, but it's a nice counterpoint, I would say. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, no question. No question. Fair, fair. <laughs> any anything else that that you've been doing or you you recommend that you found to be to be helpful during this incredibly trying time? Well, I think there's a there's there's two big ones for me and one that's hard for especially people, uh, so this is not something I attempt to hide on the show, but I'm very much uh, a devout Christian. Uh, I'm very religious. Uh, and so it can be really tough when you're not uh, participating in your worship services across this uh, across the spectrum. And I know this is not something for everybody. I've been, many of our listeners share those kinds of faith beliefs with me. And so one of the things that we've done is that we have kind of expanded uh, my family, we've kind of expanded the amount of uh, family worship that we do together. Uh, and that's a chance to kind of continue to have those comforts that you get from bigger services that you can't do right now. And and for us, that's really hard. I think the hardest thing for me in the last couple of weeks has been not being at church, um, uh, not being uh, with my small groups. Uh, and that's really, really tough. And I think for those of you who have that, I suggest that Find that time uh, to continue to engage in your spirituality, uh, regardless of your particular uh, religious background. And I think you'll find additional comfort in that. Uh, from you know, for again, for me as a um, as a Christian, it's, it's a reminder of these kinds of times as we pray and as we think that you know we don't have a guarantee about the now. We only have potentially peace in that final outcome. Uh, the other thing I've done, Mike, is, is, is I, I think many listeners know, is I love running. And so while all of my marathons have been pushed back either into the fall or until 2021, um, that's I don't run for the races. I, I, I race so that I'll run. And it's a chance to either be with your family and be out. What a great time right now uh, to enjoy the outdoors. Uh, you have time and you don't you don't constantly, I mean, you don't have to always, being locked in doesn't necessarily mean you're just sitting on your couch and you're watching television and eating nachos. Yeah. Uh, it can also mean taking a chance to move your body and, and recognize that we were, we were built to move. Yeah, absolutely. And I've just, I know we're, we're, we're about, we're about done, but one final thing I wanted to recommend is I, I come at this uh, 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 from a uh, sort of a, you might call it agnostic slash Buddhist slash stoicism standpoint. And so that that's, it gives me a little bit of a different perspective, certainly. But, uh, and, and while I recommend meditation in general, one thing that I found surprisingly helpful is that during stressful times like this, I know that I just find myself just regularly just tensed up in ways I don't even recognize. What I've taken to doing is just setting alarms on my phone uh, for like every hour, hour and a half. And when it goes off, I stop. I take three deep breaths and just kind of stretch just for, it only takes like a minute, but you'd be surprised at what a huge difference something totally little like that makes. And you don't have to go to a mountain or find a guru or anything like that, but wow, it's been super effective and it takes very little time. And so just something I want to recommend to folks. So uh, anyway, we hope that this epi this special episode has left you feeling at least a little more optimistic about things that was our goal and and if it has you know we always ask you to share episodes because that is incredibly important uh, to get this out to more people so we can keep the show going all that but 
especially if you feel that this has had a positive effect in this tough time, we would really appreciate it if you could get the word out about this. We felt we wanted to do this because we wanted to make some sort of a positive contribution in whatever we could. And if you feel like we have, please share this episode with, with folks or social media, email, however we would, we would really appreciate it if you think it's a positive thing. All right. Uh, and of course, if you uh, would like to support the show and get uh, access to our supporters bonus stuff and so forth, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash politics guys. And again, if you can't afford to become a supporter, just email me Mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you access to all of our content. And if you want to get in touch with us, our general email is mail at politicsguys.com. We have a great bipartisan politics subreddit and you'll find the URL in the show notes or you can just search for bipartisan politics on Reddit. There's also our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are on Twitter at politicsguys. So if you do forward uh, stuff on Twitter, if you could mention us, uh, that would be great when at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.